Hey, deserving listeners. Today, I'm going to answer patron emails. I'm going to try to cram as many emails as possible into one episode. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. And this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. I want to reward the patrons for becoming patrons. So if you're not a patron, this episode is going to end in a very short amount of time. If you're a patron, you're going to hear the full episode. If you want to become a patron and hear this episode and all the other uh, hundreds of other episodes that are only available to patrons, arguably our best episodes on this 12-year podcast, you go to patreon.com and become a patron of this podcast. So if you've been thinking about that, uh, do it (laughs) if you want. Uh, it's, It's a fun time being a patron, I think. You're on the other side of things. There's a lot of perks. You get obviously access to the premium episodes, but there's also uh, YouTube Q&As that I do just for patrons and I don't know, just various other things. So go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast. Do it now. Join us. Be one of us. Be one of us. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. This first email, anonymous patron, they write, My husband of almost five years has recently told me that he would like to explore having a friend with benefits to have sex with. We have explored the swinging world. However, this is completely threatening to me, and I am not interested in polyamory at all. We have recently started going to a therapist who specializes in this sort of thing, but I still worry we won't be able to find a middle ground in the long term. How can I let him be who he is without making myself totally crazy? End of email. Yeah, very interesting question and a common scenario. Some of you listening might have been in this situation in the past or present on either side of this equation. If people are interested in, let me, you know, some people know about polyamory and swinging and some people don't, but if you want to learn more, there's a lot of resources on YouTube and podcasts and whatnot. The The Bible that everyone recommends is called The Ethical Slut. It's a book that is designed to explain, it's sort of like polyamory 101. So The Ethical Slut. And so in brief, polyamory is a form of non-monogamy. So you have monogamy, like me and my wife, we are monogamous, and we both enjoy monogamy, and we both are oriented that way. Some people seem to be oriented to non-monogamy, and the two main forms that often are discussed are polyamory or swinging. Uh, There's a lot of overlap, and uh, you know, there's a lot of they're not technical terms; they're just sort of cultural terms. But generally speaking, polyamory. Uh, is seen as uh, – well, I, any form of non-monogamy is seen as either you're born that way, meaning that you know me, uh, I know that I was born as a monogamous person. Uh, I'm oriented that way. I, I don't have any – I don't feel any loss when I'm in a monogamous relationship. I don't have any longing um, it doesn't really appeal to me. Whereas other people, when they're in a monogamous relationship, they definitely feel like something is wrong. Similar to the way a gay person might feel if they were in a heterosexual relationship or vice versa. Uh, it seems as though that some people are just oriented towards non-monogamy. Uh, 
meaning that they they want a variety at the same time, and they don't mind their partner being with other people. Uh, these kinds of things. It, it's complicated. So it seems as though some people are it's their sexual orientation in essence. Another path towards non-monogamy is just a life choice. Uh, whether you know you're polyamorously oriented or not, non-monogamously oriented or not, some people just say, you know what, I don't know, I just want to try non-monogamy for whatever reason. So e- even though they don't necessarily feel in their bones that non-monogamy is their lifelong orientation. And of course, you can phase in and out of these, similar to phasing in and out of other sexual orientations. So uh, that's it in a nutshell. Uh, polyamory, if you're not aware of what it is like to live as a polyamorous person, typically there's a, a lot of communication. And ethically speaking, it's based on honesty. And relationships uh, often are discussed well in advance before engaging. I, I've i worked with uh, – so back in the very early days of the podcast, we're talking like the first few weeks of the podcast, I had a guest on the podcast, Alina Gabosh, who is a well-known Seattle and really worldwide wide proponent of polyamory and uh, kink, uh, pos- sex positivity. Uh, she was in charge of a center in in uh, Seattle that was uh, longstanding that had to do with sex positivity and polyamory and swinging and BDSM and kink. And she also was in charge, if I understand this to be correct, the uh, Erotic Arts Festival in Seattle, which was a, a very longstanding uh, art festival geared towards erotic art. And she was on the podcast. She was maybe our first sort of mini celebrity we had in the podcast. And back then in 2008, as a young clinician, or I don't know, mid, mid-career mid clinician, I didn't really understand polyamory that well. And she ex- she started to explain it to me. Now, you can still see this episode on YouTube, by the way. You see a young or a younger Umberto and, and me being uh, – we're interviewing Alina and, and another fella – from that world. And you can hear my questions that I don't really understand polyamory. <laughs> uh, since then, uh, talking to her and other people, and she actually put me in her literal Rolodex to refer clients to me. And since then, I've treated, uh, so it's been 12 years, I've treated a lot of people who are non-monogamous, and I've attended conferences or trainings and blah, blah, blah. I've supervised a fair amount of people who do this kind of work as well. And uh, what I've learned is that uh, there, there's, a, it's, there's a lot of variety to the polyamory world, but uh, I'm just going to tell you like a kind of a typical story, which is that uh, in, in a best-case scenario, the two individuals in a relationship – or in a best-case scenario, everyone involved in a polyamorous relationship is excited about polyamory in the same way that you would say everyone involved in a monogamous relationship is excited about monogamy and everyone involved in a bisexual relationship is excited about bisexuality. There's a problem when you have a mismatch, when you have a polyamorous-oriented person and a monogamous-oriented person in the same relationship, which is essentially what this emailer is is talking about. But anyway, so the people that I would treat in my office, generally speaking, everyone was excited about polyamory. Now, maybe one person introduced the other person to polyamory. You know, say the wife was like, you know what, I think I want to look into polyamory. 
She starts to look into it. She raises the idea to her husband in a heterosexual relationship. There's a lot of discussion, and then they decide to take the dive, and they find, you know what? Actually, uh, jealousy is kind of tough, but we can get over that. And as long as we are, are, you know, we're primary with each other. I want to be your primary. That's what they call it, uh, or at least the couples that I treated. And the, all the other relationships are secondary. Then, then let's go for it. You know, let, let's let's have a family here. They, they call it a polycule. And sometimes I would have several people in my office, all of whom are in a polycule. So you might have one couple who are married, a man and a woman. And the husband has a girlfriend that is outside of the marriage, and the wife has a boyfriend outside of the marriage. Or uh, uh, one couple that I treated, it was the couple, the husband had a girlfriend, a very very intimate, long-term girlfriend, aside from his wife, and the girlfriend had a husband, if you know, so... You had two couples that were linked by the husband and the wife. Anyway, and then, of course, there were other relationships that the other everyone was in, whether it be maybe just once a month where they go out to dinner with someone that they met at a party and may or may not have sexual intimacy with each other. And the point of this is that, again, some people are just they, – they just don't want to be in a monogamous relationship. It feels uh, depriving. And, and what the polyamorous people that I worked with, there was just a ton of communication up front. They would – and that's the joke is that swinging people uh, like to have sex because in contrast, swinging – the term swinging tends to get used for people who aren't necessarily interested in relationships. They're more interested in sort of one-off sex. Uh, now, you might swing with the same people in an ongoing basis like – Every month you get together, you know, as a as a heterosexual couple or let's just say a gay couple, two men get together with two other men once a month. And uh, but you're not necessarily interested in like talking a lot or having an attachment with those people. It's more about the fun and play of sex, whereas polyamory can be that. But it, but it also but it usually is involved in. Uh, attachment and friendship and this sort of thing. It depends, but um, so the polyamorous couples that I would that I would treat, they would talk well in advance. So they they would say, you know what, I'm going to Burning Man, and and my you know the husband isn't coming, and so the wife would say, I'm going to Burning Man uh, in a couple weeks, and I just want to know what my limits are. You know, I'm. I'm, I'm going to get – I'm going to take some ecstasy and I might go – I've been to Burning Man before. I know how it goes and I might randomly get together with someone. What what bases are OK? Is first base OK? Is second base OK? And, you know, they would have a honest conversation and um, maybe the husband says something like, well, let's just keep it to making out. Let's not go beyond that because, uh, you know, you don't really know these people and – we can't really verify that these random people are are going to be STI free, and that's the other thing about polyamory is that they are they have advanced systems of making sure that STIs don't work their way through the polycule. In that everyone is tested frequently, and they will actually map out the polycule such that so let's say like you know you have one heterosexual couple. Each member has three people they're involved with. 
each of those three people have an average of two people that they're involved with. And, and so you map out the polycule, and eventually you might have like 25 people. But, but no one new is entering that 25-person group. And everyone agrees in the polycule that they're not going to let anyone into that polycule without talking with everyone else. And they all get tested, and it's like, okay, we're all good, and we're not going to spread anything around. Or we, we know the people who do have things, and we make sure that we use protection with those people. And we all agree as a 25-member polycule that we're not going to let anyone else in because that raises the risk of a, an STI getting into this polycule and working its way through all 25 members. So they would talk very openly about this <laughs> in a way that for some people might seem very shocking, in a way that uh, monogamous people could really learn a lot from. Polyamorous people, they're so outside the box that they're like, you know what? We're not going to follow any – we're, we're going to question all of the cultural norms, including not talking about SDIs, including – not including the idea that you are inherently jealous or that uh, if a man allows his wife to have sex with someone else, that means you're a cuck, you know, all these kinds of terrible thing. And we're going to question all that because, yeah, if you don't want your wife to have sex with other people, it's fine. But if what if you don't mind or what if it, it's you kind of mind, but you're you're willing to have that you know, a little bit of jealousy or whatever amount of jealousy so that you can have other relationships with, with other people because you just want to have as many loving relationships in your life. Okay. So what about kids? People say, well, what about kids? Well, I've treated polyamorous families that have kids. So there might be uh, one woman and three men who are all living in the same home. Each man is a husband essentially to the woman and the woman has two kids in the house. And the kids don't care, in my experience. You would think they would uh, because it just seems like they would. But but I've seen it where they just don't care. They're just like, yeah, you know what? I, I can't really tell my friends at school that I have I live with three dads and one mom. But, you know, I really love it. Uh, I love all three of my dads. I love my mom. Yeah, sure. I guess in principle, I, I know that uh, each one of those, uh, each one of my fathers are having sex with my mom occasionally. I don't know, but they don't share their sexual life with me, and I don't want to know about their sexual life. <laughs> I just know them as, you know, three dads and a mom. That's I don't. I, I, they don't tell me about their sexual life, and I don't want to know about their sexual life. So, in the same way that most kids will know, yeah, I know that my parents have sex, and I know that they've had sex with people probably before they had sex with each other, but you know what? I don't want to think about that. It's just not really <laughs> what I'm thinking about. So, you know, we tend to, because we're such a sex-negative society, we tend to look at these relationships and be like, oh, but the kids, you know, they know that all these people are having sex. Well, you know, that's happening all the time, and what's wrong with kids knowing that their parents are having sex? <laughs> like, really? Now, there's a line, obviously, and you don't want to expose your kids. And, and poly parents, for the most part, understand the same principles of parenting as any other parent. And uh, these families, poly families, have the same problems that monogamous families do. Uh, they, don't, they don't have fewer problems, in my experience, and they don't have more problems. They, they just have the same amount of problems. Because it's not like polyamorous people don't have personality issues and conflict, and, and you know they have the same amount of issues. So it 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 doesn't it doesn't it just is a different way to live essentially. Okay, so 
that is polyamory and uh, that's swinging and that's open relationships and that's non-monogamy in a nutshell. And certainly you can have polyamorous people who will swing and you'll have swingers who will dip into polyamory and you'll have uh, some polyamorous people will decide, you know what, let's, I, I think I want to rein this in a bit and I, I just want to be monogamous for a couple years. And many, many polyamorous people will. So like I said, in the best case scenario, everyone, you know, poly people date poly people, monogamous people date and marry monogamous people, people interested in swinging, they date each other and get married. The problem is, is we live in a society where uh, poly people and swing and open relationship people are stigmatized. And so they have to live in a monogamous world. Uh, often. The other thing is because there's so much stigma around this and so much uh, judgment about it, a lot of non-monogamous oriented people are trying to fit themselves into a monogamy uh, lifestyle. They are, uh, shall we say, born poly, and they're trying to force themselves to be monogamous. And so they will date monogamous people just because most People seem to be oriented that way. It's hard to know the stats because of this reason, because we judge it so much. But anyway, a, a lot of poly people will, in the same way that back in the day and today to, to a lesser extent than before, gay people, lesbians, would try to force themselves to be heterosexual. And they would date and marry and have kids with heterosexual people and then 20, 30 years into the marriage or however much amount of time – the gay or bisexual or um, or lesbian person says, you know what, I've been living a lie. And everyone suffers in that situation, right? The gay or lesbian person suffers because they've been living a lie because society has basically forced them to live that lie. So they've suffered greatly. The heterosexual partner is suffering because now they're like, wait, so you don't even really want to, I'm not the ideal mate for you, according to what you're saying. And now you're potentially going to leave me or I have to force you into this heterosexual box that you don't want to live in. You know, everyone suffers in this situation. So uh, the same goes for when a poly person, because of social stigma, tries to force themselves into a monogamous relationship and ends up with someone that, that is monogamous. And the um, emailer, it seems like maybe that's the case. It's, it's hard to tell, but I've certainly seen that uh, happen. So, um, And it's also possible that some people just don't know their poly until they're in a long-term monogamous relationship. And then all of a sudden they're like, wait a second, <laughs> I am suffering. I, I don't like this. I love my spouse. I want to be with them. But I I cannot be with one person the rest of my life. That is just not going to happen. And maybe they just didn't know that from the beginning. And uh, they might not have known they were supposed to explore that because our society judges it so much. Um, okay, so what do we do in that situation? What do we do when one member of the couple says, hey, uh, I think I want to open up the relationship. I want to open up the marriage. Well, the path is lots of talk and lots of exploration. And I'm really glad, emailer, that not only did you find a couples therapist to help you with this, but you found a couples therapist who specializes in this topic, which is very important. A lot of couples therapists have, uh, shall we say, limited understanding of polyamory. I've personally experienced that. And shout out to Modern Therapy Seattle. 
uh, friend of the podcast, Kate Stewart. She's, she actually was on, uh, she owns this, um, this, uh, group practice in Seattle on East Lake called Modern Therapy Seattle. And they specialize in sexuality and polyamory. They specialize in this topic of what if one person wants to open the relationship or not. Kate Stewart ha- has actually published a book on opening a relationship. She, she, she's been on the podcast in the very beginning years that she was on a flirting episode and a open re- relationship. And um, I remember when she opened up this group practice called Modern Therapy Seattle, uh, she took me out to lunch and she's like, you know, do you have anyone that would be good as as interns or uh, you know, early career therapists who want to work. And um, so we've been collaborating for many years and I've supervised many uh, people who she was also supervising. So I was, you know, supervising interns at my university and postgrads who were at this group practice anyway. So um, there are uh, specialists in this. And if you're in the North Pacific Northwest area, modern therapy, Seattle, anyway, uh, and as I said, I, I and others uh, in private practice will also specialize in it, whether they talk about it or not. I think I talk about it in my disclosure statement. Anyway, so in my experience, and there are there's a lot of variety to this in terms of you know the different configurations of couples that will come in where one person wants to open it up and the other person doesn't. But often what I would find in the couples that I would treat, it boils down to a, a question, which is – at the beginning anyway, is what is each member's sexual orientation and to what degree? How, for the monogamous person, are they really monogamous or are they just trying to be a good person in the eye of society or religion or something? Um, are they in the same way that is is a heterosexual person actually heterosexual or are they just acting heterosexual because they felt like they had to fit in? And in today's world in Seattle, we don't. We fortunately don't really have to ask that question very very often because there's been a fair amount of liberation and um, you know activism to uh, normalize being gay. So we don't have to ask that question so much anymore. But we definitely are in the dark ages when it comes to polyamorous, and so. When polyamory, when someone is hetero, when someone um, identifies as monogamous, we can't necessarily know for sure that they actually are monogamous, <laughs> because you know they they might be a like I said a you know non monogamous person shoving themselves into a monogamous lifestyle. But anyway, so so that begins the that begins the the exploration. So f- for this couple, we have a uh, the the one that uh, emailed in. You have the husband who is saying, I think I might not be monogamous. And the wife is like, oh, I think I'm monogamous and I've always been monogamous. But sometimes people don't really know. And so one of the questions that you explore is, are you actually monogamous? How do you know you're monogamous? How do you know you're not at least partially polyamorous or, or non-monogamous? Because some, you know, there's a spectrum, shall we say. Some people are just like a billion percent poly and some people are a billion percent monogamous and some, you know, a lot of people in between. So it's an exploration. Now, all this exploration is done before anyone takes any actions because for the non-monogamous person to just be like, well, I'm non-monogamous. I'm going to start having sex with other people. Well, that goes against the agreement that the two of them had. Uh, So 
usually the monogamous person isn't excited about that. And so this is all exploration. It's all talk. It's all individual and relational exploration. The other person is, you know, the, 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 for the person who is like, I want to open this, open up this relationship, oftentimes they have a very rudimentary understanding of their open relationship orientation in that they might not have ever really lived a proper uh, ethical polyamorous relationship in their life. And so they might not even know to what degree they are poly. There's also a possibility that the person who wants to open the relationship actually is monogamous, but just doesn't want to be married to that person anymore. You know, does the person who looks non-monogamous, are they actually oriented towards polyamory or are they just sort of clouded to the idea that, you know what, I don't, I just don't want to be married to this person anymore. And that takes a lot of exploration and it, you know, it's pretty cut and dry usually because to the person who wants to open the relationship, you just ask them like, how in love are you with your spouse? How sure are you that you want to be with that person? And, you know, if the person's like, oh, I'm totally in love with my wife and or I'm totally in love with my husband. I love him so much. I want to be with him the rest of my life. I, I, I need him. I never want to lose him. And I feel like I need to have sex with other people. I need to have attachments to other people. I need to have uh, deep relationships with other people. But I, but I definitely do not want to lose my husband. <laughs> I need that guy. I, we have such a great life together, you know, all these kinds of things. And so, um, so it's a lot of exploration. You know, is it, is it polyamory? that the non-monogamous person is leaning toward, or is it swinging? You know, the friends with benefits thing that the emailer said, that sounds a little bit like swinging, but who knows? Because there's just a lot of exploration that has to happen. Uh, also, if the, you know, the other exploration that needs to happen is the non-monogamous person, what sort of non-monogamy are they looking for? Are they looking for having one-off sex once a year? Are they looking for deep relationships that are just as intimate emotionally as you know their current relationship? Are they talking about being poly with five people? Are they talking about um, they don't know what they're looking for? You know, these are very complex things. So uh, you explore that bef- before you do anything because you know you don't want to force polyamory on it on anybody. Now. If both people decide, you know what, I think we're both poly or I think we're both willing to explore polyamory, which this, you know, that happens a lot, then that begins the journey. That's not the end of the journey, you know, for both people to say, you know what, I think, you know, let's give this a try. I, I think I'm more into it than my husband is, but he seems to be willing to give this a try. This is not the end of the road. This is the beginning of a different road. Lots of therapy needs to happen. Lots of talk. Uh, there's going to be jealousy. There's going to be um, hurt feelings. And in the same way that a monogamous relationship will have jealousy and hurt feelings. And you have to work your way through that. And it's a complicated thing. Uh, I, like I said, I treated a lot of polyamorous couples. And it, it it's complicated in the same way that any relationship is complicated. Uh, the... Now, what happens, though, at the end of the exploration, and I've seen this before, too, 
where the open relationship person is just like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I've always been polyamorous. I need to have intimate emotional and sexual relationships with more than one person. I'm, I'm 99% sure that's me. And the other person is like, yeah, I'm monogamous. I have no interest. It's, it's the idea of opening up this relationship is only bad for me. There's, you know, cause sometimes the, the monogamous person will be, you know, the, the non-monogamous person will be like, well, like in this person that emailed, the husband might say to the wife, hey, you know what, wife, you can be with other people too. You know, I'm going to be with other people and you get to date other people. And sometimes uh, the person in the wife's position will just be like, yeah, but I don't want to. <laughs> like, I don't want that complication in my life. I, that doesn't appeal to me. I mean, if you're going to force me to date other guys, I guess I'll try, but I I'm not interested in that. I, I just want to be with you. Okay. So there, there's, this is a weird situation, you know, and there's a lot of therapy that happens after that as well. And the key is, is that uh, neither person should be pressuring the other person to, to change. And there are, but this is all before any behavior happens, right? Because, you know, the, just because the, the poly person has discovered in the midst of a monogamous relationship that they are polyamorous. That doesn't give them some sort of license to hurt their monogamous partner. Uh, they agreed to a monogamous relationship in the beginning, presumably. And they uh, now this can be a deal breaker for either person. And this is sometimes where it comes down to is for, you know, let's say that after months of, exploration and talking, the monogamous person is like, nope, this is a deal breaker. Um, I'm an, I'm a monogamous person. I don't want to be with anyone else. And I, I want to be with you. And I can't take it if you're with other people. Maybe even they tried it a couple of times and the monogamous person is just like, no, like I can't live this way. I, I was up all night crying and yeah, I tried the the antidotes to jealousy and I read the ethical slut and I've looked at other kinds of resources and you know what I, I just I just don't this is a deal breaker I can't live this way anymore I don't want to and the poly or non-monogamous person is just like yeah yeah I can't I can't live this way anymore well then some tough decisions have to be made and sometimes it means breaking up and sometimes it means one or both people make a compromise. But th this is not an easy conversation. And like I said, best case scenario, people know they're poly and people know they're monogamous prior to engaging in dating. There are uh, dating websites where one of the options is poly. You know, you can say there's a drop-down menu for gender and, and sexual orientation, and there's a drop-down menu for monogamy and non-monogamy. And so it, uh, and some are, some Dating websites are more geared towards that, that diversity. And so um, there's a drop-down menu, hopefully, for asexuality and aromanticism or demisexuality, these kinds of things. And so it's all a matter of uh, reducing stigma in our society such that people who are this way are able to discover this for themselves. 
and then they can find their tribe and they can find their people so they can date those people so that you don't run into these, you know, of all, there's going to be barriers in every romantic relationship. There's always going to be problems. Why add to it by having such strong stigma such that so many poly people have to subdue or, you know, submerge their true selves and find themselves in a conundrum 10 years later. Um, so, so it's tough, you know, if, if you're in a long-term relationship and you really value that, like, what do you do? Well, you know, like I said, it, it's a, it's a lot of discussion, but getting back to your email here, uh, you say, my husband of, of almost five years has recently told me that he would like to explore having a friend with benefits. We have explored the swinging world. However, this is completely threatening to me. I'm not interested in polyamory at all. I'm guessing, by the way, that uh, the emailer said this because she she doesn't want her husband to be emotionally involved in other people. Having you know sex with other people is maybe not as bad, um, but it's still very threatening, as she says. Uh, we have recently started going to a therapist who specializes in this kind of thing, but I still worry we won't be able to find a middle ground in the long term. Uh, so everything thus far is par for the course for a lot of people, and it's tough, and you don't know to. But this final question is what is interesting to me. How can I let him be who he is without making myself totally crazy? So this implies that you've already decided that you're going to let him be quote unquote who he is. You're going to, you're going to let him have sex with other people. And now you're saying, you know, how do I avoid going completely crazy? Well, it, that is not, you've already jumped to a conclusion that you are supposed to let him be who he is, that you're supposed to be in a open relationship when you might not be oriented that way. Now, one of the problems that I've seen, and I've actually supervised, you know, with some of my supervisees, I run into this, is that the it. Uh, how do I say this? <laughs> um, if you're a therapist that specializes in in polyamorous um, work, one, you might be polyamorous yourself, um, and two, you're very much on the side of polyamory is a good thing, hopefully, right? You know, if you're a ther- if you're a clinician who specializes in poly people, hopefully you're pro-poly, right? You might even be poly yourself. Okay, so I've seen this, this bias by these sorts of therapists who will subtly encourage the non-monogamous person to allow the relationship to open up. And if you're a clinician out there who does work with poly people, I hope that you you know not to do this, but but it's a complicated thing. You know, I, I've had supervisees uh, who have this bias. Uh, they might be poly themselves, and as they're treating a couple, uh, on at least on the surface, their conscious mind is like, "Well, I'm going to be open. You know, I'm not going to force the non, non I'm gonna, I'm not going to force the monogamous person to be non monogamous because that's not right." But in the the discussion and the vibe they give off, uh, the therapist might subtly give off this vibe of like, you know, come on, monogamous person. We all we all know that poly is a better lifestyle. We all understand that humans aren't really monogamous. I mean, you'll find people that believe this, whether they're clinicians or not, where people uh, on either side, you'll, you'll certainly see people that, no, 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 we are monogamous. God made us to be monogamous or whatever. 
And then you'll find other people will be like, no, 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 we are, we are non-monogamous creatures. And it is obvious. Just look at bonobos and all this stuff. Me and Alberto did a full deep dive. I did a long, I don't know, a couple months deep dive into all the research. And in a nutshell, it is clear that we are uh, adaptable and that we have variants among our, our species in that it seems as though we're all capable of monogamy, kind of. Because when you actually look at people's lives, people will call themselves monogamous. But when you actually look at their lives, you're like, well, yeah, I've, I've had sex with 15 people in my life. And you're like, okay, ha- have you ever had sex with more than, more than one person in the same month? Be like, oh yeah, you know, happen. I date, you know, a few people and have various different levels of sex. You know, whether it's intercourse or not, um, whether it's making out or whatever. You know, uh, you've had sexual romantic contact with more than a few people in a month. Okay, does that sound monogamous to you? Doesn't sound monogamous to me. <laughs> uh, but they'll claim that they are monogamous. But their behavior, if you know, an alien were, were to look at humans. Would they conclude we were monogamous or would they conclude that we're non-monogamous? And even those who are monogamous for a long time, how many of them look at porn that involve other people? How many of them think about other people? You know, so what do we mean by monogamy is one thing. Um, but when, when we look at the data, it seems pretty clear that there's a wide variety of lifestyles that people will explore uh, depending on what society they live in or just who they are. And that for some people, monogamy or serial monogamy, if you will, seems to be the comfort zone. And for some people, non-monogamy seems to be the comfort zone. And it, we just don't really seem to have a, uh, a clear biological mandate, if you will. And there are other animals that seem to have more of a biological mandate in that way. Anyway, uh, what was I saying? Okay, so – uh, the point is, is that your question is, you know, how do I, how do I let him be who he is without making myself totally crazy? Well, uh, you should start with the question of, uh, do you want to allow him or are you being influenced by your husband or maybe even your therapist to uh, conclude that you need or you should let him have sex with other people and be involved with other people, even though you, you are, you know, it's total. You say it's completely threatening to me. This might drive me totally crazy. You don't have to live that life. That is not the way this is supposed to work. Polyamory is not supposed to be imposed on on other people. Uh, maybe this is a deal breaker for you. Maybe this is a deal breaker for him. Maybe he needs to make some adjustments. Uh, to to salvage their relationship, you know, say you put your foot down, you're just like, no, 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 I I can't do this. I'm I am so sorry, husband. Uh, it kills me to say this to you because I know you're going to be so disappointed, and I might lose you because of this. But I cannot live this way. So either you're going to have to figure out a way to be monogamous with me. And we'll live happily ever after. And I don't. And I don't know how you could do that. And I feel very bad that I would have to ask you to be that way. Or we're just going to have to break up and and grieve this situation. And I will 
try to find someone who's monogamous and you you can find your polyamorous people. You can find your open relationship people and we can both be more sure of the people we should date prior to getting involved in a long-term relationship. Um, that happens sometimes, you know. But never should someone feel like they have to grin and bear it. That is not what should be happening. Uh, now, maybe you've decided, you know, you're just like, he is compelled and I've got to put up with that. And if I don't, if I don't let him, he's going to break up with me. And I don't want to, I don't want that to happen. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, bear down and, and just sort of deal with this. Well, you know, this is a larger topic of jealousy in general, and I've worked with a lot of poly people, but it's, I don't usually like to work with couples in your situation along those lines. Um, usually, um, I won't, you know, usually the jealousy issue, I'm dealing with two poly people who are totally open to poly and they are, uh, maybe in the early stages or maybe, you know, later stages and, and they're just having a hard time with jealousy. Well, the, the jealousy feeling comes from a fear of loss. Generally speaking, we generally get jealous when we are worried that our spouse is going to abandon us. They're going to find someone better than us. They're going to leave us for some, someone else is going to take them away from us. And that can be cured and mitigated by strengthening the bond and having a lot of emotional reassurance. You know, so for example, say um, a poly couple and they both want to be poly. And the wife is about to go on a weekend excursion with her her other boyfriend. And the husband is like, you know, it's one thing when she goes on a date and maybe spends a night at her boyfriend's house. It's another thing. This is like a three-day weekend. And I, I don't know. There's just something about that that feels threatening to me. And I, I feel sad. And I, I feel like I shouldn't be having those feelings because, you know, I'm a poly person. I get it. But I'm just really having – I find myself in a bad mood as we sort of uh, get closer to that weekend that she's going to spend with him. And and then we explore that. So, you know, what do you mean? And, you know, what? how are you feeling? What What's the worry there? You know, and we might find that for him he might say, well, I guess I'm worried that that amount of time I'm not going to be on my wife's mind, that – I'm going to be I'm going to be second and I always want to be first. I want him I want that boyfriend to be second. I want to be first. And I feel like this weekend I'm going to be second. I don't like that feeling. And okay, so then turn to wife, you know, what do you want to say to that? And the wife might say, "Oh, honey, you are first. He is second. And yes, I'm going on a thing with the weekend." Uh, and by the way, I don't have to go if you don't want me to go. You know, if this is too much, I won't go. I I'll stay. I'll, you know, I'll tell him this is too much for you, and he'll understand because you've because this other thing is a lot of times everyone meets each other. The husband meets the boyfriend. <laughs> that that's the sort of typical poly way. You know, is for everyone to know each other and to be okay with it. You know, in order for the wife to engage in a relationship with this guy, the husband sometimes uh, needs to approve of him because he, this boyfriend might be involved in their lives for years and years. And so the husband needs to be okay with that. So, 
You know, maybe the boyfriend goes to the husband and says, you know, hey, you're number one. I know I'm number two. And I love uh, I love her in the same way that I guess you love her. But uh, but I have my I have my primary people. I you know, I'm not looking for her. I'm not going to weasel in on your relationship. And I I really respect you your marriage with her. And I, I really like that relationship. I, I don't want her all to myself. I like that she has you. you know, maybe those are the reassurances that he needs to hear. Or maybe he is, is just reached his limit and he's like, I, I just don't think I can, I can let you go on this weekend. Um, so that's what poly people do. Lots of talk, lots of love, lots of attachment, awareness, Lots of honesty, lots of upfront about what jealousy is. And instead of just turning to control, instead of just being like, you know, you can't talk to other men ever, that kind of thing. It's more like, okay, what's going on with you that you're having this feeling? Is it that we've been distant lately? What's going on here? All right. So I I don't know. I, I'm wondering if I'm triggering some people as I talk about this. If I was to predict some people being triggered, that uh, some of you listening might have been in a relationship where you were, you know, you're monogamous and your partner at some point says, you know what, I want to have sex with other people and I want you to just deal with it. And it was very hurtful to you. And that person, you know, your partner didn't ask for your permission. Uh, just bulldozed you. You guys didn't go to therapy, and for you, this this question of uh, you know, hey, I want to have, I want to do swinging, was essentially your spouse just just wanting to, um, I don't know, hard to, hard to put it into words, but just not very nice to you. And and so sometimes I've found that some people will hear about this sort of thing. They'll be like, oh, it's just another man who is a dog and he just he just wants to have his cake and eat it too. And certainly those kinds of cases can exist, but uh but there's a whole other situation where there's just poly people and in my experience most of the people just anecdotally who want to open their relationship in a heterosexual relationship it's women in my experience. I have friends and colleagues and clients who uh, were in a long-term relationship and the woman was just like, you know what? I just don't think I can deal with one person the rest of my life. So, um, so it's, it's in least my anecdotal experience. It's not a, it's not a genderized thing it, in, in the broader society. They'll use about, Oh yeah, it's usually a guy and he's just a dog, you know? Um, so, uh, so maybe that would trigger people as well. Um, the other thing I'm guessing that, me people might be triggered by, but I think I accounted for enough is I'm not saying that I hope everyone understands. I'm not saying that um, you're supposed to be poly. You know, if you are a monogamous oriented person, such as I am and my wife, then, you know, hallelujah, that's who you are. (laughs) You know, like you deserve that. And uh, if someone comes along who is poly, um, you know, you don't have to change who you are, uh, clearly. Anyway, let's go on to another email here. Alex from Toronto. I think this is a long-time listener, Alex, I'm not sure. Uh, asks, 
Why do you think people confuse and misdiagnose borderline and bipolar? The way you frame them, they seem very different. How might they manifest in similar ways and why? Okay, that's a great email. I've talked about this before, but just briefly. All right, so y'all know I talk about borderline a lot, but in a nutshell, uh, borderline does not describe a person very well. It's a very broad label in the same way that bipolar doesn't really describe, describe people. What it does describe is a set of symptoms or experiences that are particular to some people such that we have a label for that. It's like, okay, that person suffers from this disorder. In the same way that if you said, you know, this person has ADHD, that really doesn't say anything about the person's personality, right? So if you said that person has borderline or that person has bipolar, it doesn't really say much about them, okay? So I just want to be clear because sometimes we can reduce people to their diagnoses and it's just like, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, like for me, in the past, I've suffered from mild PTSD and I'd say a mild version of panic disorder as well. But, you know, of of everyone who has panic disorder, am I just like all the other people who have panic disorder? No. <laughs> like, panic disorder is present in every single type of personality out there, right? So the same goes for bipolar in particular and borderline kind of because borderline is more pervasive to one's personality. But certainly you can have other aspects to your personality, right? You can be borderline and extroverted. You can be borderline and introverted. You could be borderline and um, talkative. You could be borderline and very quiet. You could be borderline and ambitious. You could be borderline and very content. You can be borderline and um, love cars. And you can be borderline and hate cars. You know, <laughs> it doesn't describe much about you. You know, you could be borderline and you could be poly. You could be borderline. You could be monogamous. Anyway, so uh, there's that. But the reason why a lot of people um, – uh, misunderstand these. I think one is because they sort of sound similar. <laughs> borderline, you know, is borderline personality disorder, BPD. And bipolar is sometimes reduced to BPD as well because it's bipolar disorder. Uh, sort of a dumb acronym if it's being used that way. But anyway, so um, in a nutshell, borderline, for those who have it, they have relational traumas. And when they are triggered, their trauma is triggered in terms of they have signs that they're going to be abandoned or they're going to be abused. Their body goes into hyperdrive of massive fight or flight, freeze of peas, faint response. And they are extremely unregulated in those moments because they're being triggered. And their method of trying to manage that uh, trauma distress is sometimes to get angry at people. Not always, you know, the so-called quiet borderlines or what do they call them? Yeah, I think they call them quiet borderlines. Anyway, um, everyone with borderline personality disorder has at least an impulse to get angry. They might not act on the anger, but they, they all have the impulse. They have the inner feeling of, of anger in response to being abandoned, you know, essentially because when they were three years old and they were being abused or abandoned – they had a ton of anger about – they had a ton of hurt about that, just unbridled pain around the abandonment and abuse they went through and a subsequent unbridled anger about that as well. And so uh, because those wounds have never healed, they could be 35 years old and just have an unbridled three-year-old 
um, you know, escalated version of hurt and anger that it usually isn't present in an adult. And they will sometimes have a compulsion to just have a massive meltdown and a massive amount of anger and just screaming and, you know, and so um, not always, of course, but, and I've seen this in two different forms. I've seen it in with people with borderline. I've seen it where they're being triggered with their abandonment, but I've also seen it when they lose the ability to rely on their defense mechanisms uh, when their defense mechanisms are all kind of stripped away under a, an acute stressful moment. Uh, and I've seen people with um, any personality disorder uh, have this episode where they just become completely unregulated, where you, they just are, um, you just, when you're with them, you just get this sense that they have fallen into an emotional black hole and they are enveloped in emptiness and pain and void. And it's just, it's awful to watch. Um, it, it's a similar feeling, I'm guessing, as to what we all feel when we're like nine months old and we feel like our parents have left us or something. You know, we're in the crib and we wake up or like, oh my God. We don't have any ability to soothe ourselves when we're that old. And for people with personality disorders, usually they have uh, that similar They've retained that feeling and the inability to soothe themselves in that situation. Um, so, and by the way, if you're listening and you're being triggered right now, stop it, take a breath, and uh, come back later. There's no reason to have a podcast traumatize you. And that goes for whenever I'm talking about anything. But anyway, so uh, for people with borderline, when they are acutely being re-traumatized and it can be over something that doesn't look like trauma. Like they could get fired from their job or their spouse could, they could just get in a minor argument with their spouse or uh, their friend didn't text them back or, you know, it it could, it's not usually small things, but it, it can be small things or an accumulation of small things to these individuals. And then they will have, because their their traumas are being triggered in such an acute way, they they can sometimes have just a massive emotional breakdown and it may be suicidal. And then someone takes them or maybe they take themselves or maybe they're forced to go to a medical hospital, a mental health hospital or a mental hospital or a medical hospital. And someone comes on the scene and they're now trying to assess this person in the span of 10 minutes and they'll talk to the person and the person, you know, talks about just extreme anger and extreme sadness and, and suicidality and ideas about how the world works and, you know, no one loves me and every, just complete despair. Well, this can look like bipolar in the moment. This is why it's sometimes confused and misdiagnosed, particularly in some of these institutions because in the moment it can it can look like a bipolar episode and so with bipolar and it's a complicated uh, condition it's it's often simplified but in a nutshell you have three di- you have four different modes you have depression which most of us understand you have you have regular mood if you will and then you have hypomania and then full on mania and so hypomania is where you're, you just have, you're in a great mood, you have a ton of energy, 
you're optimistic about the future, you're making changes, you're, you're moving, you're shaking, and you're, you're succeeding, and you feel good, and you feel like you can take on the world. And then you have mania, where you believe that you can do anything, that you, and you don't need any sleep anymore because your nervous system is just revving so high. You might even become delusional, where you think you're a god, or you might even hear voices at this point. You might believe the FBI is after you know they're schizoaffective. All you know, anyway. Point is, is that those are the four different uh, phases, and in general, you can have mixed modes, and there's a lot of different presentations. But I hope you understand what I'm saying. And so, for someone that is in the throes of mania uh, or a mixed episode, sometimes they can also come to the emergency room in, in, a, in a state of confusion and a state of high emotionality that doesn't make a lot of sense given what's happening in their lives. And they might not be able to soothe themselves and they might not respond to anyone soothing them. In a similar way to someone with borderline personality having a meltdown in response to relational trauma and an acute distress tra- traumatic response. Bipolar is not related it's not a trauma response. Bipolar is generally, I mean, it can be triggered by trauma and, and trauma is associated with it. But generally speaking, we think of bipolar as a fluctuation in body chemistry, essentially, in, in body processes. Not always, but we, we don't really understand it, but it seems to be that way. It's, it's, it's independent of what's happening in the world. It can be triggered by what's happening in the world, but it seems like a pretty powerful inner body uh, process that doesn't need anything on the outside to push it in one direction or the other. Again, it can be pushed in one direction or the other by the outside world. But with borderline, it is not a bodily only process. It is a circumstantial process in that uh, the person with borderline never just randomly wakes up and is just like, I'm being triggered by the world. You know, it, Someone has to make them feel like they're being abandoned. Now, it can be a very small thing, like um, someone you text, you know, the borderline person texts their spouse at work and the spouse, you know, doesn't get back to them for half an hour. You know, I, I one time had a had a client years and years ago who uh, she had borderline personality disorder and I was at an agency at the time and I was really working hard on providing her with a corrective experience. And so one of the things that she would talk about is just like how, how much she missed me in between sessions, which is very common. And I know some of you listening can relate to this. You know, the attachment injury is so severe and the attachment need is so great that once they find a secure attachment in a therapist, they, they want the therapist all the time, which makes logical sense. To go your entire life without anyone being there really in your corner, as particularly when you're really young, and then all of a sudden this therapist comes along who is non-judgmental and safe, you just want to be like, oh my God, you know, therapist, just wrap me up in a swaddle and carry me around with you because finally I can trust someone, finally someone who uh, I feel good around, finally someone who makes me feel like I matter. And so it makes sense. And, you know, you can actually increase sessions per week if it's possible. But but there's always going to be that loss, you know, because uh, you're essentially repairing a, a self that is one year old. And, you know, one year olds don't spend two hours a week with their parents. Hopefully <laughs> they spend 24 hours a week with their parents. 
depending, or at least 24 hours a week with their attachment figures, whether it's, you know, grandma or, you know, daycare worker or something. Anyway, point is, is that uh, in between sessions, uh, this therapist or this client was saying, you know, I miss you and I, I, I just need something. And uh, we agreed that she would call me during the week if she wanted to at the office. And if I was available, then, you know, I, we'd be able to talk. And, and, she, and she was like, oh, my God, that would, that would help me so much. It's like, okay. And so uh, we did that for a while. She would call, and, we, and, and I would always tell her, you know, uh, I only have a couple of minutes to talk, this kind of thing. Well, one time um, it, it was real busy at the agency, and I, I went to the lobby, and I was about to grab my next client, and I, was, I had about seven minutes. And the receptionist says, oh, you know, so-and-so uh, is on the line, and she wants to talk to you. And I was like – and I had this split second. I thought – I really don't have time to talk to her right now, but if I say no, that could be bad. So I should probably say yes. And so, uh, okay, so I said yes. And so I, right there in the middle of the of the reception room, I you know picked up the phone, clicked on line two or whatever, and and picked up the phone, and started talking to her. It was all this chaos going around me in the waiting room, and and including my next clients coming in. And I I said to her, I said. Hey, you know, uh, I just want to tell you up front that I'm kind of in a chaotic situation right here, um, but I'm so glad you called, and I, you know, um, let's let's check in. But I just want to tell you that I'm in a chaotic room, and I don't have a lot of time to talk. Um, but you know, how's it going? And so we took a couple of minutes, and she was very pleasant as she always was. And for the next, I don't know, two years, almost every session she would bring up this moment as a massive example of how I am a terrible human being to her <laughs> and how I, in that moment, she had decided that I abandoned her in that moment, that I, I don't really care about her. I uh, will never really be there for her, that I secretly hate her. You know, I secretly want to get rid of her as a client. And, you know, some of you, Borderline listeners right now might be able to listen, might be able to relate to this a little bit. Uh, I know some of you have emailed me about this. It, it's just your trauma, you know, trauma being triggered and it distorts what you're seeing. And so, anyway, all that to say that it can be a very small thing that can trigger someone with borderline to have extreme, extreme hurt, unbridled hurt and pain, and then unbridled anger and just a huge mood shift, if you will. And so sometimes people will look at that and go like, wow, you know, their moods, they're, it's so big and random. You know, if, if you're on the outside as a clinician or as a family member or friend, you might just be like, well, you know, they must have bipolar because their moods are so wild. They go from normal to angry so quickly. And that can be bipolar but it's not usually bipolar because, like I said, bipolar usually has these long swings where you'll have six months of depression and then maybe a couple months of normal mood, if you will, and then slipping into hypomania and then mania for like a couple weeks and then nine months of depression. It's not always, you know, this case, like I said, there could be rapid cycling and mixed cycles and stuff, but but often that is the case. And so... Um, when I will hear people 
because a lot of people come to me and they'll be like, I think my, I think my husband is bipolar. And I'll, I'll, if it's couples therapy, I'll assess him and I'll quickly learn, oh, no, no, he, he's, on the, he's on the borderline spectrum. And I can see why people think it's bipolar because he has, he has huge mood swings um, when, when he, because he's frequently triggered by the trauma of abandonment and um, lack of attachment security. And he has two modes that he goes into. He, he's pretty much hurt all the time, by the way, because uh, he because his trauma is so sensitive to to things. Um, and he is in two modes. Either he is angry and distancing himself from other people. He's hurt and angry and distancing himself, or he's hurt and angry and yelling at people. So from the outside, it the moods are okay. Sometimes he's normal. Sometimes he's brooding, which looks like depression, and sometimes he's screaming at me, which looks like mania or something. And so it can look like a mood disturbance and a mood disorder rather than a personality disorder that results in shifting moods. Does that make sense, Alex, from Toronto? (laughs) Anyway, well, uh, that does it for that episode in which I only, I think, got to, what, just two emails? (laughs) I was hoping to get there's so many more. Uh, next time I do this, I just have to maybe have a little egg timer and say, okay, you got three minutes to answer this question. But I don't know. I, I think that's why I like podcasting so much is that it gives me the opportunity to explain as long as I want to explain instead of having to limit myself to just a few minutes. <laughs> I'm sure it bothers people though. And I apologize if some of you out there are just like, Okay, Kurt, get to the point. Get to the goddamn point. And and I get it. I hear you. And I don't, no one ever says this to me, but I'm I'm sure that people think it sometimes. And sometimes I will edit myself down. I will, you know, I'll talk for thirty minutes. And I'm, ah, you know, I could probably get that down to ten minutes. So I get it. And I'm sorry. <laughs> Even though no one is saying anything, but I don't. Uh, actually, I just should take. I should just take ownership of the fact that I have an inner voice that says, "Shut up, Kirk." <laughs> I also have an inner voice that says, uh, "Kirk, you know, you have some good things to say sometimes, but sometimes you go on and on, and you could just probably limit yourself." You know, I think where this is coming from is I got an email this morning from someone that literally said something like you know, that my episodes are becoming repetitive or something. And that really hit me somewhere. Uh, What they were referring to is actually the reaction videos, which, you know, I can't really do much about that because in the reaction videos, I'm literally reacting uh, in the moment and have no time to prepare. And so it stands to reason that sometimes it's going to get a little repetitive because I'm only so good on the, you know, off the cuff. But but it got me thinking about the podcast in general, and uh, I've just you know talked for a long time about borderline, and I've probably never I've everything I just said about borderline and and bipolar. I'm quite positive I have said before on the podcast at least once, if not multiple times. So everything I just said, I've said before, and but yet I still get the same questions over and over again. You know, like the question of why do people confuse bipolar and and borderline. Or the question of, I don't understand the difference between borderline and bipolar. I get that question all the time. So I feel like I need to explain it again. Uh, 
but I'm the same person with the same essential conceptualizations over time. And so I'm going to repeat myself. And so uh, just, you know, if you have this complaint, let it be known that I am, I would never want to listen to a podcast that repeated itself over and over again. Um, and some podcasts that I listen to or have listened to will do that. And it will really turn me off because I'll just be like, you keep talking. In, in fact, do I say what podcast it was? No, I won't say. I don't want to dog on someone. But there was this – it's not even a very popular podcast. But it's a podcast that I really loved. And uh, as time went on, I was just completely gripped by this podcast and the discussions. And after a while, I found myself saying, I feel like I've been here before. And I wish the podcasters would spend more time coming up with some fresh new thing to say, or just don't say anything at all. You know, why don't publish an episode and get my hopes up when it's just you're just saying the same things over and over again. <laughs> Stop it. It's boring. And then it just never stopped. And then I just stopped listening to the podcast. So know that I have that on my mind. And I've been doing this podcast thing for 12 years. And there's all there's a lot of little dials that I dial in, you know, because on one hand, it's like, well, we have, there's always new people. And so maybe they haven't heard the answer to this question yet. And maybe there's a new way I can sort of answer it. But then, you know, there's people who have been a long time. And I, and actually, you know, this relates to being a professor a great deal as well, because uh, students in my class will have varying degrees of sophistication regarding the topic I'm topic, talking about. Some people will have no understanding of what I'm saying. So, you know, sometimes, you know, if I'm talking about, say, psychoanalysis or something, uh, there will be people in the class who ha have studied psychoanalysis, maybe even been through it themselves. And there are other people in the class who don't even know what I mean by psychoanalysis. I, I, I had a supervisee recently who um, said something along the lines of like, well, you know, I don't want to psychoanalyze him. And, and she meant it that way. And I was like, whoa, whoa, what do you mean by psychoanalyze him? She's like, well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to psychoanalyze him. I don't, I don't want to. And I was like, define, what do you mean by psychoanalyze? Because it's one thing for lay people to say that phrase, because I think what they mean is, well, I don't want to read into, I don't want to falsely read into this person and, you know, look at a bunch of tiny little signs and sort of extrapolate wrongly on that. I think that's what psychoanalyze means in the colloquial way. But among clinicians, psychoanalysis is a field of research and clinical method that goes back 140 years. And to, to use the phrase, I don't want to psychoanalyze that person, it's like, don't use that phrase as a clinician. That's that's not, a, it's not an accurate thing to say as a clinician. You know, you... Uh, there's certain phrases that the common public will use that as a as a therapist you shouldn't use. Now, uh, for this supervisee, she just had never learned what psychoanalysis was. She probably – I don't know what school she went – I forget what school she went to, but uh, she just has never been exposed to that, and that's fine. And so as a professor, when I have students like – uh, from these wide variety, I have to adjust my teaching so that everyone feels included, so that the – the people who have no idea what psychoanalysis is, I, I need to be able to talk in a way that they can understand at least some of what I'm saying. And to the advanced students, I have to give them something new. 
you know, and how do you do that? It's a complicated thing. And, and I'm always thinking about that, you know, and I, you know, I've sent a number of surveys out to the listeners and uh, received feedback on, you know, what they would like and what, how they'd like things to be different in some ways. And just let it be known that I'm always thinking about that kind of thing. And the thing that I'm thinking about right now is, is this podcast fresh <laughs> or am I just rehashing things? And so, you know, I, I, I really do not want to rehash things. I don't want to get lazy and complacent and sort of comfortable. Um, I'm, I'm always looking for, okay, what's, what haven't I gone into and what are, what ways in what, and this is similar to being a therapist, honestly, there's a lot of analogies to that as well. In that, uh, you know, two years into therapy with a client, it, it's frequent to find yourself falling into a rut. And as a therapist, I have to be aware of that and know how to get out of it. And because client and therapist can sometimes collude to avoid certain things and to stay in the safe zone and to avoid growth and healing for the client. And so in the same way, this podcast, um, you know, am I avoiding certain things or am I sticking to comfortable lanes uh, well-tread, well-known, uh, very safe lanes, and what can I do? Now, I, I'm never going to be the sort of broadcaster, or I don't know what you call us, podcaster, that wants to just create a wave, you know, and just wants to be a shock jock in some sort. I'm never going to be that person. But but there's just so many topics to talk about. And if I'm talking about the same stupid topics over – not stupid topics, but if I'm stupidly talking about the same topics over and over again, um, I need to stop doing that. So I am thinking about that. And now I'm wondering if I'm talking too long about this. So I'm just going to nip it in the butt. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself. All you patrons, you're awesome. Thank you for being a patron. Really, really special. Um, it, it, every month, I just feel so grateful that you all signed up. And uh, I, you are my, you know, if everyone could, if everyone just went away, you know, like a, you patrons would be the people that I would, you know, want to retain. And you're the people that I'm always thinking about uh, pleasing as well, by the way. Um, you know, there's there's a s- small set of patrons, right? And not every patron is, you know, involved all the time. And so I'm really thinking about, you know, the people who, um, I don't know. Uh, consider this podcast to be a a big part of the life. I have certain podcasts that are a big part of my life too. And um, so just know that if push came to shove, you people would be the people that I would want to stick around and everyone else could go away. (laughs) And I'd still be very, very happy, really, honestly. Uh, I don't know. Did I explain that? (laughs) All right. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself. And take care of others, because we all deserve it. We really, really do. 